Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Dropping Bars. This is Kimron Korean, and I am bringing you another exciting episode. I have a an exciting guest with me today, no other than Dr. Philbert Aaron. Dr. Aaron is somebody I met um, a, maybe a couple of years ago, two years or so ago, could be less, um, while I was a communications manager at the Grenada Tourism Authority, uh, his wife, Kamala Aaron, um, and, him, and him, they actually did a, a workshop with us with the entire marketing and communication team because, you know, they're communication experts. Uh, and, you know, they had a nice session with us on storytelling and everything. And it, it, was, it, was, it was a fantastic session. And um, I, I felt, you know, compelled to reach out to Dr. Aaron and, and, and invite him to come and drop your bars and drop some bars with you. And he agreed. So, Dr. Aaron, Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Aaron, I'm, I'm jumping right in and just ask to ask you to introduce yourself. You know, tell us who you are and, and, and what do you do and, and where you're from. First of all, I'm, I'm very thankful for your invitation to, to be on Dropping Bars. Um, I, I follow your, your episodes. I'm particularly interested because you... You usually discuss lessons, leadership lessons, life lessons, and I'm very interested in this. So uh, thank you very much for, for having me. Um, well, uh, me, uh, I have been uh, a diplomat for a while, but uh, let me start by telling you that I was born in the Commonwealth of Dominica. And um, a few years ago, I transitioned to the United States after serving as Dominica's ambassador to Venezuela under President Chavez and President Maduro. Um, before that, I had been an academic uh, a professor uh, of the, uh, in the United States, and uh, I was there an education expert, uh, having um, done a PhD in education policy and leadership. Um, also, uh, recently, um, I have developed a uh, a specialty in leadership, focusing on the prime ministers of the Eastern Caribbean, uh, particularly interested in how they learn to do their jobs, how they develop uh, on their jobs, how they last in their positions, and most importantly, what kind of impact they have on the development of their countries. So uh, I have done this. And on the personal side, I'm a family man, uh, I'm the husband, uh, proud husband of Kamala and the father of, of three kids, uh, Olufemi, Kamara, and Oluchi. So thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Aaron. And um, w one of the things that you said, you spoke about, you know, your your experience in, 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 in leadership and so, and you, one of the things that I want, I want to touch on is the, the, one of the discussions that I know that's happening in, in the Caribbean right now is the centers on like non-traditional education. You're an educator. You just said so yourself. Uh, but there is this, this discussion on non-traditional education. As a matter of fact, uh, the governor of the Eastern Caribbean Central Bank, uh, Timothy Antoine, who is, who is Grenadian, very proud of him. Um, he, he, he made a very specific, um, he made a speech, uh, given address recently where he spoke about the importance of skill set, not just the, I want to say the formal education setting, but, but, but that there should be 
a, a, a equal emphasis being placed on on skills um in some cases hard skills right so what i want to ask you as somebody who has um a leadership consultant um you focus on education diplomacy uh policies and so how how important do you think is, is this type of education to the development of the caribbean region that's a great question uh, there's no doubt that non-traditional education especially um, training in skills there's no doubt that's very important um, but first of all uh, let, let me explain uh, non-traditional education and the issue of hard skills uh, non-traditional education is defined in opposition to traditional education and traditional education is what we know what we are you know very comfortable with we um, of this age, we were trained, we were educated in that way. And uh, usually we define it as uh, education in which the teacher stands in front. Uh, the expression is that the teacher is the sage on stage. Uh, he has all the knowledge and he has 30 kids in front of him. He pours knowledge into those kids. Um, also, going with that form of education is usually academic knowledge. It's usually abstract knowledge. And so by opposition to that, there is non-traditional education. Non-traditional education in this case is usually you educating yourself, you pacing yourself, you not necessarily being in a room with a teacher at the same time. So the teacher might have recorded a session and you access it whenever you want to, at whatever time, in whatever place. And so there is this kind of uh, disconnection between teacher and learner in this case. And that's what non-traditional education is. Uh, it also goes sometimes with hard skills, especially, um, you know, producing things, material things, material economic things. So uh, very often people access those kinds of um, courses to prepare food, for example, or learn right. to wire electric, um, electrically wire a house or build a, a, a table, do carpentry. But, you know, we have great examples in the world today of those. It would be Elon Musk, for example, the, the owner of uh, um, Tesla Motors uh, and now Twitter, uh, somebody who does things, somebody who was able to build engines, build cars, and eventually uh, built up an, uh, an entire motor company. Um, so it's people like Bill Gates, uh, Elon Musk, and so forth. Now, here is the thing. The question of non-traditional education, the question of hard skills, these are not the primary question that an education planner should start with, all right? Mm -hmm. So generally, these questions, when, it, uh, when they're used by uh, a private individual, this is not usually problematic. Generally in the Caribbean, uh, individuals, we consume education, we pay for our education, we go overseas, we do different things, we train ourselves. The question is different. What we're trying to do there is move up in society. We don't ask ourselves large macroeconomic questions. However, the question that you ask about Caribbean development assumes that the perspective is national, it's macro, it's macroeconomic. And from there, the question really and the perspective are different. Here, the question of just accessing education without asking the first question, what is it for? Mm -hmm. That is a problem. So 
properly speaking, from a macroeconomic perspective, from the point of view of the entire country, the first question is, what is the direction? Meaning, where are we going? What are we trying to do? Right. Generally, it is for us as a developing region, it is we're trying to develop economically. Concrete expressions of that are, we are trying to get all our people out of poverty in 10 years, in 15 years. So if we put it around a table, for example, we imagine a cabinet, a cabinet in the Eastern Caribbean or in the Caribbean. The first person to deal with that kind of issue is the prime minister. The prime minister sets the direction. He says, for the next five years, we are going to take our people, every one of us, out of poverty. Secondly, comes at the table the Minister of Planning or the Minister of Economic Development. He answers the question, how are we going to do this? We might find that we have uh, comparative, absolute advantages in tourism. We have sun, we have sea, we have sand. Or we have mineral wealth or forests, for example. That is the second question. Only then does the strategy of education come in. How okay. are we going to get our people uh, producing at the highest level or at the appropriate level in the strategy chosen to attain our goal? And here is a, here is a big deal in the Caribbean. We usually put the education question ahead of those other questions of what is our direction? What are we trying to do? And how are we going to do it? Properly speaking, non-traditional or traditional education, hard skills or soft skills, they only are a fuel, like gasoline. They're not the fire. Economic development is the fire. Economic development needs fuel. You can pour gasoline onto it. You can feed it timber, dry wood, leaves, whatever you want. But education is the fuel. Education cannot start an economic drive by itself. It needs right. a fire that it will speed up or blow up. So this is what we need to ask first. What are we trying to do economically? And how, in terms of economic strategy, how do we do it? Only then do economic planners come on and decide, here is what you need. Here is how many people you need trained in this area and so forth and produces then produces the kind of labor for that and that is the that is the ideal way in which it is supposed to be done and, and I, I i like what you just said um i i was speaking to a friend of mine and and the equator has similar sentiment they said you know at the end of the day we before we this before we start saying okay well we want to I say investing in education. We need to know exactly in what areas, what what areas um, do we need in, in, in the country or, or wherever it is, so that we could invest specifically in having people educated in, in, in those particular areas. So um, I'm, I'm glad that you that that you mentioned um, that and you, and you really really broke it down in the way that you did. So thank you very much. And I I, I want to look at. And I know education is one is one area of, of who you are, and also uh, leadership is another area. And I want to look at leadership development, but uh, sometimes uh, 
at least from my experience, and I, and, and I guess when I ask you the question, you can um, clarify that for me. We start focusing and investing in, in, in leadership in people when they're in, in, in the workforce. Right, so when you have somebody's working, uh, you send them to a supervisor training or, or whatever the case is. Um, do, you, do you believe that in the Caribbean we are placing enough emphasis on on leadership development at a young age? Uh, I mean, yes, we have young leaders, right? And but but is there enough emphasis being placed on on leadership development at at that really young age, whether it's the secondary school, um, the college level, um, before we actually get to the workplace? And, well, and if, think, if yes, why? If no, why not? Oh, I like this question because uh, this is a question that I've spent a lot of time uh, on. And I spend time on this question because, um, as I said earlier, one of my concerns in my research on leadership, particularly of uh, Caribbean, Eastern Caribbean prime ministers, is the impact on national development. So, so the question of, you know, are we focusing on leadership development uh, sufficiently is, is, is very, very close uh, to, to what I do. So in short, the answer is no. We're not focus, focusing um, enough on leadership development, either at an early age or at a later age. But, but let me break it down. Let me explain. To really understand and address this question, we need to be able to separate leader from leadership, we should be able to separate growth from development and management from leadership. And in the, in the Caribbean, normally what goes on is that we mix management with leadership conceptually. We conflict them, we blend them together as, as if they were the same. We do the same thing with growth and development. So leader, is, is very simple. The leader is the individual doing the leadership action. When we invest in that leader, make him more or make her more confident, we're doing leader development. That has some impact, but it is not the ultimate impact. Leadership is an action, is a system of action between a leader and a follower. Now we're bringing the follower. We're building up that relationship, making it productive. When we invest in leadership, we are doing a, a much more impactful investment. Now, there is growth. You can grow your skills. That's not development. Growth is more of the same. Let's illustrate, for example, in the Caribbean. Caribbean people are familiar with agriculture and especially familiar with the coconut tree. When I say more of the same, I'm talking about, for example, the stem of the coconut tree. There are coconut trees that are 100 feet tall, meaning 99 feet or 90 feet of stem, but they do not bear fruit. That is more of the same. There are coconut trees, however, farmers especially know about dwarf nuts. A coconut tree with five yes. feet of stem may bear fruit. Now, bearing fruit, that is sophistication. Development is not more of the same. It's another level. It's sophistication. So leadership development is supposed to be about that, building the relationship between leader and follower, but not just to create more of the same, but is to take production and the relationship itself to another level. 
Now we're talking about leadership development. And in the Caribbean, we haven't begun to use the discipline of leadership development to look at and to improve processes, especially to solve the biggest problems that we have. So let me illustrate that for you. The Caribbean has, in the last few uh, decades, uh, suffered a number of very important collapses. For example, cricket. Um, a guest uh, of yours um, discussed this recently, that cricket, yes. we dominated the West Indies, the Caribbean, we dominated cricket uh, of a few decades ago. Now we don't. Here is one thing. During that process, we still sent our best cricketers or our developing cricketers where? Overseas to our competitors, even our enemies to train. That's a lack of leadership development. We also have a challenge. We are the most, our economy is the most dependent on tourism, but we are losing market share as a region. Where do we train our, our leaders in tourism? Generally, we send our leaders, even in tourism, to the places that we compete with. That is a problem of leadership development. We have, for example, invented reggae music. Jamaica has. It's the Caribbean. However, production of reggae music, much more of it is happening outside of the region. And that poses a problem of leadership development. We have other challenges. Let's take the Eastern Caribbean where we sit. The Eastern Caribbean recently, we had a collapse of the banana industry. For about a, a generation, we were crying wolf. Banana is going to die. Banana is dying. We did not develop a process for preventing banana from dying or putting in swiftly a replacement. This illustrates abundantly the leadership development problem that we have in the Caribbean and especially the Eastern Caribbean. Now, it doesn't mean that there are not bright spots. There are bright spots right. in, in the region. For example, again, I, I focus on the Eastern Caribbean, especially Eastern Caribbean prime ministers. So here we have a model, a unique model of political uh, system and especially of leadership development of political leaders. Like 60 years ago, 1950s, 1960s, there were men with very little education. In Antigua, Dominica, Grenada, St. Lucia, St. Kate, St. Vincent, they created a political system in which first they created unions. Men of very little education. Later on, they created political parties. Eventually, they got control of those countries. They did not train in foreign universities or universities at all. They trained themselves on the job. That is what you were referring to. That is a great example. However, in the 60 years since then, the, the system of developing leaders has remained the same. Parts of it have even collapsed. For example, there used to be the role of trade unions in developing leaders. This has largely disappeared. So the model of leadership development is, is collapsing. And what we have here is that it impacts leadership quality tremendously. What one of the biggest impacts, in addition to what I mentioned, that we are not solving our biggest problems. One of the biggest challenges is that leadership becomes a hit or miss thing. In Dominica, for example, we've had seven prime ministers. 
two have succeeded. What it means is every three prime ministers, about two of them fail and one succeeds. That is very impactful negatively for a country. So this illustrates what the main thing that we do not focus enough on leadership development and we can do it, we can do it better. There are, there are leaders who succeed. For example, Prime Minister Skerritt. Uh, he succeeded, youngest prime minister in Dominica, but the second prime minister, youngest prime minister in the history of the job. Prime ministers anywhere in the world, okay, at 31. Right. So that is a success. He also ha had the highest level of support in the history of Dominica. That's a success. He has lasted the longest in, in, uh, in, in Dominica. That is success. But those are largely exceptions, and most importantly, these are leadership models in which the leader largely trained himself outside of institutions, outside of universities, outside of schools. And so rightly, it cannot be claimed that that is a success for our emphasis on leadership development because we do not focus on leadership development uh, in the region, including our smaller region. Thank you. Thank you for, for breaking that down. Um, I'm really learning a lot from you. Just, just sit down here and listen, and I'm like, wow, I can imagine your Thank students you. <laughs> as, as you. an educator, right? I, I really like how you break it down and use examples. This is, this is, this is golden. Thank you for doing that. And you, you, you spoke about, you know, leadership in terms of political leadership. You spoke about um, your study of uh, political leaders in the Eastern uh, um, Caribbean. Um, so, and I know that one of the things, one of your, your, your many hats is, is you're a diplomat. And I want to kind of, um, get a, get a, get a little insight on, on life as, as a diplomat, you know, uh, as a, a former ambassador to, to Venezuela, um, current, uh, as, as based on your, your recent posting, the, uh, prominent representative to the, uh, Dominica's prominent representative, um, to the UN. What 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 does life as a as a as a diplomat entails? Like, is it the, the, the good life? The... <laughs> good question. Good question. Um, actually, it really uh, the life of a diplomat brings in the both poles of what people imagine, um, and it is you know you have on the one hand you have the ultra prestigious assignments. On the, on the other hand, you have much more uh, pedestrian, much more, um, you know, concrete um, types of activities. So, uh, you know, my first assignment, uh, as I said earlier, I was ambassador of Dominica to Venezuela. And uh, during that time, uh, under the leadership of Prime Minister Skerritt for Dominica, and in Venezuela, um, Hugo Chavez, and uh, when after... Uh, the passing of Hugo Chavez and um, President Nicolas Maduro. Uh, you know, to illustrate, during that period, during those 10 years, I am very happy that I contributed to maintaining the relationship of Dominica uh, with Venezuela. And not just maintaining, but servicing on a very detailed, concrete way. That is being in constant contact with my counterparts, being in constant contact with the country of Venezuela, constant contact with financiers, banks, uh, ministries, and so forth. That illustrates part, part of the job. Um, also, there's the other, the ultra prestigious part of the job that most people pay attention to, 
Uh, and there is that. For example, I can see that I have had access to and worked in the presidential palaces of Bolivia, of Cuba, of Honduras, Nicaragua, Venezuela. These are, you know, very, you know, uh, prestigious places. Um, however, mm -hmm. the, the function of a prime of a um, of an ambassador at the most simplistic level, most simplistic, is carrying messages. Sometimes it's a physical message. Sometimes you deliver a letter. Sometimes it's word of mouth. However, at a more sophisticated level, it involves reporting as well as advising and representing. So representation can be as simple as attending an event, for example, in Venezuela, in which you say nothing, but your presence says a lot. You don't use words, but your presence tells the people of Venezuela, the government of Venezuela, that you have a friend in Dominica. It might be a sad event. You're there to express grief, to give condolence. Sometimes you lay a wreath. Nonverbal actions, but these are very, very, very meaningful. You are showing the people uh, of the, that country that you support them. They have a friend. You care for their well-being. At other times, you're negotiating. It's, uh, it's much more complex, uh, many more procedures, and so forth. And so, so that's the that's the the life of a diplomat. And I'm I'm very happy that I have done. I have been able. I have been able to really get in the weeds in the relationship between these two countries because these countries and all countries have diplomatic relationships because they have interests. And right. two mountains don't meet. And very often. Two countries don't meet, especially uh, our islands that are separated, that are surrounded by water. And I, as ambassador, I, as diplomat, I, am, I serve as the bridge between these two peoples, these two countries. And, you know, make sure that there is understanding. In the reporting, for example, uh, I report to Venezuela, uh, we've had a hurricane, here is the situation. Here is exactly what the situation looks like. Here is how many people perished, unfortunately. Here how many people are injured. Here is what happened to our hospitals, to our roads, and so forth. And I do the inverse. I do the same thing for Dominica in, uh, when it's uh, it relating to Venezuela. I inform the prime minister, advise him of the situation in Venezuela. Here is what's going on. Here is what's not going on. So this is, this is in some the life of, of a diplomat, especially at, as head of mission, the life of an ambassador, reporting, advising, representing, uh, but basically is serving as a bridge, a human bridge between those two large entities, those two distant entities, abstract entities. That's the job. Okay, thanks for thanks for sharing that. I, I've always wondered, you know, what 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 it was like, and um, you definitely clarified it. And I imagine in your in your years of uh, whether it's as an ambassador, as a, as a, as a professor, whatever it is, that there must have been some obstacles that you faced um, along the way as you execute your duties, whatever those duties were. Um, are there any obstacles that you that you that you face that you want to share now and and maybe share how you overcome them? Absolutely. I wasn't uh, 
born into uh, a diplomatic service. Uh, I wasn't <laughs> promised onto that. It wasn't promised uh, to me. As a matter of fact, growing up as a young person in Dominica, I, I, you know, I actually understood that diplomacy, being an ambassador, was the the task, the job of certain uh, well placed individuals at the time with certain um, you know powerful names. My name, my last name, Aaron, is is a, is a very humble name. I, I come from uh, a, a, a poor family. Um, my parents, two parents, fortunately, with seven kids, five boys, two girls, and my dad, you know, raised that family on tilling a piece of land, a piece of land that wasn't his at first, you know, squatting on mountainsides, walking miles to get to that piece of land. And the only other job he had, well, he was also a fisherman. And when I say fisherman, I'm not talking about a guy with a fleet of, you know, a fiberglass uh, um, ships that he goes out and catches big fish. No, my father was a coastwise fisherman using um, Native uh, American style canoes to fish, mm -hmm. to fish and to catch small fish, sprats. In Creole in Dominica, we call that chacha. We even add small in front of it, tea chacha, right? right. And we, we have small fries. We call we we, we we call people that when we want to, uh, you know, denigrate them. So my father was that. You know, that's what he did. And once a week, he was a stevedore tossing bananas into the holes of uh, guest um, ships that took bananas to England. My mother was a, a seamstress, a farmer also, and a seamstress. But here is what. I've seen that you've written about uh, having a side hustle, selling tambourine balls, uh, at least yes. you know, uh, you know, uh, during a period of your life. Well, well, my mom had several side hustles. My mom would sell anything that she could make or farm. So she sold, you know, coconut cakes. That would be, that, that would be the equivalent to your, uh, the coconut version of, your, of tambourine ball. She sold lettuce, she sold cucumbers, she sold tomatoes, coconut cakes, uh, you know, so many things that she, she did. So she hustled and I learned from her that hustle. And so in high school, I had a side hustle. I lived on the port of Portsmouth, big wide open bay where um, tourists came. And I went after tourists, um, um, especially pleasure yachts, smaller ones, not the mm -hmm. big, large tourists with thousands. And I did a side hustle of providing them with water, with ice, with fruits, uh, taking um, them up the Indian River on tours, boat tours, or arranging safari tours for them um, around the country. And I was in high school. I was uh, studying at the same time. So that taught me one strategy for dealing with my poverty. It also taught me something very important that unfortunately uh, my family, my parents did not teach was the purpose of life. That is something generally working class kids do not get from home. And so I you know, got some of that from uh, that side hustle and it gave me a sense of discipline. I had one major challenge in my life was that I could not sit still. I did so much physical activity, walking around, getting fruits, doing business, 
roaming the forest, swimming in the sea, that I did not have the self-discipline of being able to sit. Well, here's something. If you can't sit, if you can't be still, if you can't open your ears and shut your mouth, you can't learn from school. And so I had that as an early challenge. Fortunately, from this activity, I was able slowly, slowly, with the help of others, but slowly from that example of hustle and doing my own hustle to give myself a purpose in life and to discipline my body, I would actually force myself to stay in our yard at least throughout the weekend. When I, you know, when I started training myself to sit and to listen and to learn and to read, I would actually, I would actually uh, do that. Force myself not to roam for miles, but to sit around the, the, the house and the yard and build up that discipline. That's how I, I, I started digging myself out of, of that hole that I was in. And, and I imagine that along the way, that you learn some valuable lessons, some valuable life lessons. Um, what are like three lessons that you learned along the way that you can share with, with our audience? Absolutely. I'd be happy to share those. Uh, first of all, it's interest. You need to find an interest. Some people call it a passion, but you need to find an interest. You need to find a passion, something you like doing. Now, now let me quickly uh, say this. There's a lot about passion in personal development. You, you're on LinkedIn, you see that. You hear that all the time. Yes. Just do something you like and you're bound to succeed. That is not true. Passion alone gets you nowhere. Absolutely nowhere. So once you have a passion, okay, that gives you some, some direction, you need to be able to commit to that thing. You must commit to it. You have to be all in. You have to not spare energy or time. You have to give it everything you have. But there is also a critical part that I don't think we emphasize enough, especially in personal development circles in the Caribbean. It is testing your capacity for the thing you like. We say this around mm -hmm. uh, certain communities in the Caribbean. You may like math, but math may not like you back. So it does not That's end true, yes. on having, having a passion. It does not end with having interest. You need to find an interest. You need to commit yourself to developing that interest wherever it leads. And you need to be really realistic about it. You need to test your capacity for it. And this happened in my life, but it is also emerging in my research. Again, my, 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 my research subject uh, from Prime Minister Roosevelt's career has shown that. He had great passion for politics very early. But when I met him at the Dominica Grammar School, he did those two other things. He had already committed, he had already committed to two things. He was not sure whether he would be a politician or a lawyer. But at the Dominica Grammar School, he tested his capacity for leadership. He got himself elected head boy, and there he practiced politics at the school level. And already there, you can see him taking on certain practices and doing things in a certain way that you will see later on in life. 
So these are three right. tested, uh, tested um, lessons. Find a passion, commit to it, but keep it real. Find out if you're good at it or if you're not. If you're not, find another thing. Find something that will reward you with the time that you put into it. I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, too many times we have people saying, just follow your passion, just follow your passion, follow your passion. And, and, and to me, it, it, it's, it's a bit misguided. And so, so I really, I'm really happy that you, 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 you broke that down. So, uh, Dr. Aaron, and we're also about to enter uh, a new year. We're about to end the 2022, enter 2023. Uh, now we have some young people that pay attention to dropping bars. Um, what what is you know um, what encouragement uh, you can leave with young people across the Caribbean region as they're about to enter? Well, as we're about to enter uh, a new year, twenty twenty three. But here is what I'll say: you are in a region of excellence. The Caribbean is a region of excellence. We have achieved excellence in many things: in cricket, in music, in in uh, in sports, in business. So I would urge people, not just young people, everybody, but including young people, I would urge them to pay attention to the success stories in your culture, in your region. Pay attention to those stories. For example, we have, I, I, I always mention the example of excellence of Prime Minister Skerritt, because at 31, where generally young men in the Caribbean paying attention to other things. He was already top in his job leading a country. But apart from that, there are others. I pay attention to Rihanna, for example. This girl from Barbados, who started out with music, traditional, but we do music. However, she went on to disrupt, completely disrupt the beauty industry. Did it globally. So much so that before age 35, she has made herself a billion dollars. So yes. look at the success stories. We have a lot of them. There's the success story of Bob Marley. There's the success story of gold medal winner Kirani James of Grenada. There yes. is, yes. of course, Usain Bolt. But we have in different areas also. We have a Nobel Prize in economics from St. Lucia. Arthur Lewis, Sir Arthur Lewis. That is a global level of success. Again, from St. Lucia, we have a Nobel Prize in Literature, poet, playwright, Derek, and we have also in Trinidad, we have V.S. Naipaul. So we do have those success stories. I'm urging Caribbean people, especially youth, to pay attention to the success stories and to go for success. Do not compromise. Excellence is possible. It's there in those examples that I mentioned and more. So give it your all. We generally talk about, yeah, I'm, I'm doing, I'm, I'm trying a thing. I, I'm, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm seeing whether it will work. Let's get away from that. You have to commit. You have to give it your all. You have to be all in. You have to not back down. You have to go after your success. You have to pursue excellence. It's in our culture, and and you can do it. Absolutely, absolutely! Wow, what a way to wrap up. Thank you so much. Now, uh, Doctor Aaron, 
I mean, that this was this was fantastic. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for dropping those awesome bars with us. I, I greatly appreciate it. I greatly appreciate your time. I know it's 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 the holidays, so I mean, it's, it's even more appreciative uh, um, of, of of you coming on and and, and just uh, dropping those bars with us. So thank you everybody for tuning in to another week, another episode of Dropping Bars. We were speaking with Doctor Philbert Aaron and Doctor Aaron. Thank you again for coming on Dropping Bars. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kimra. Absolutely. So, guys, uh, see you next week when we will have another episode for you of Dropping Bars with another special guest. See you next week. <laughs>